Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're just continuing the week after Easter to plug through the Gospel of Luke. So we're back in Luke chapter 20. We've got several verses to get through today. But before we start, I just want to ask a question. Uh, have you ever been given fair warning about something in your life and then you clearly just failed to listen to it? Has anyone ever told you, hey, uh, you probably shouldn't get in this relationship. It just doesn't seem like it's going to work out. And you go, you don't know what you're talking about. And then a year later, you have to come back and go, yeah, that just was a terrible, terrible idea. You were, you were right. I really should have listened to you. Have you ever been told, hey, that career decision I don't think that's going to work out. I don't think that's going to make. And you're like, no, I promise you, underwater cities are the next big thing. And I'm moving to the Caribbean to get ahead of the curve. And then you come back broke a few years later and have to go, you were right. We were just way ahead of our time. Has anyone ever given you fair warning? You know it now, but you failed to listen to it then. Maybe more seriously, has anyone ever told you, um, hey, you need to prioritize God in your life. You're running a million miles an hour and God just seems to be getting less and less attention. And you go, it's, it's fine. I'll, I'll get it straightened out here in a little bit. And then you have to come back to that person a couple of years later and go, you were right. That is a slippery slope. When, when I failed to prioritize God, there, there were things that I did that I would never thought I would do. And I felt so alone and so broken. And you told me, you warned me, but I wouldn't listen. I just didn't want to hear it at that moment. Have, have you ever had an, an experience like that? Well, today, the parable that we're going to read, Jesus is trying to give fair warning to the religious leaders. It's Tuesday of the last week of his life. The religious leaders are still plotting how to murder him. And Jesus is going to give all of those listening, those who will choose to listen, he's going to give them one more chance. One more opportunity to heed his warning and to not go through with this. We'll see that Jesus is still talking to a large crowd of people, but the context, the context was for those religious leaders probably sitting off to the side. We're going to hear Jesus say, hey, what you're planning on doing, your ancestors who had your roles, um, they did this repeatedly in the past. They did it every time that my father sent a prophet that they did to the prophets what you're wanting to do to me, and it just really didn't work out for them. So I'm trying to give you fair warning. You don't want to do this. You don't want to be the person responsible for this because it has consequences that come with it. And so Jesus, wanting to give them this warning, he jumps in to this parable, but he goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He starts at the very beginning to paint this picture, and we'll see it through the parable. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. So once again, he's talking to the masses, but there's an intended audience for sure. He says, a man planted a vineyard. The man is God. The vineyard is his creation. He rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. Now, Mark actually records one more little aspect of the vineyard, which I think is worth reading because when it just says that the man made a vineyard, we, we don't see really God's creation in that. But when you read Mark chapter 12, verse one, it says this, he put up a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a watchtower. He made everything they would need to be self-sustaining, everything they would need to enjoy life and that vineyard. He created it in that way. 
And you ask yourself, how in the world are they connecting a vineyard to God's creation? I'm not there yet. But those listening, they would have immediately thought about Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 would have come to their minds, especially the religious leaders, and they would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. Here's what Isaiah 5 says, verses 1 and 2. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Okay, they would have put that together. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Verse 2, he dug it up and cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for those crops of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Jumping to verse 7, this is the vineyard of the Lord Almighty. It is the house of Israel. Everyone would have known, we don't, but everyone would have known immediately that Jesus is talking about creation and the great hopes, the great hopes that the people of God were created in his image and were supposed to just thrive in this created world, thrive with God. Jesus will give a history lesson to the history professors today. He goes all the way back to the beginning. And he says, here's what you need to see, how man has continually failed and how that has consequences that comes with it. He starts with the created order. He describes a fully functioning, self-sustaining land that God made and left to his people in hopes that they would bear fruit and give him a portion of it. That was the whole intent. I'm going to give you this. It's for you. I, all I want you to do is bear fruit. And when God had finished creating the vineyard, when God had finished creating the universe, Genesis 1:31 says this, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Initially, it was all very, very good. Pleasing to the eye. Something that people would want to be a part of. But then he rented it out, Okay. Who did he rent it to? To us. Those who were made in his image. And it's not theirs. They don't get to keep it. So that's why the renting makes sense. They don't get to keep it. God made it. It's his. But they get to live there in this very good creation. They get to benefit from it. It was common in the first century for landowners to buy a field, fully prepare it, and allow tenants to come work that land. The owner usually collected between 25 and 30% of whatever the land garnered. Okay? Sharecropping, whatever you want to call it. That was very common back in the first century. So when Jesus is telling this, he's drawing on things that people would have understood. Now, I think it's interesting that the industry standard is 25 to 30 percent, but God in his creation says, I just want you to give back 10. I, I just want 10 percent of the fruit. I want that back for, for rent, basically, because of all the great things that I'm giving you. God made this perfect world so that his people might share in the joy of his presence forever. That's why he created the vineyard. That's why he created the universe, so that his creation might share in his presence forever. But his creation quickly rebelled. And so God had to orchestrate a rescue plan. And I believe that he knew this was going to happen. So the plan was probably made before the beginning of time. But here's what God's plan was initially. I'm going to send prophets. I'm going to send prophets to remind this fallen creation of their need for me. That, that, that's my plan. That's what I'm going to do. Luke chapter 20, verses 10 through 12. At harvest time, he sent a servant. Okay, that's a prophet. They're referred to as servants all throughout the Old Testament. So those listening would have known what he's talking about. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him up and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, 
But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. The word wounded there usually describes to a head wound, which makes some people believe that Jesus is referring here to John the Baptist. It would fit the language, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what Jesus is referring to. Mark chapter 12, once again in verse 5, gives us a little bigger picture of what Jesus said in this parable. It says, he sent still another, and that one they killed. So Luke only refers to them beating the prophets, but Mark adds that they killed this one. He sent many others, some they beat, others they killed. This parable is clearly referring to the prophets, and anyone listening would have quickly drawn that parallel. The Old Testament is clear that many, many times God sent his messengers to tell his people, come back to me, repent, turn from your evil ways, come back to me, your loving father. We don't know for sure which prophets Jesus is referring to here. Okay, We don't know who he's talking about, but we do know of God's numerous attempts and the failure of almost all of the prophets to get any traction in calling God's people back to him. Now, we have no real knowledge either of the fates of most of the prophets. Scripture doesn't tell us how their lives ended. But we know of two relatively insignificant prophets who were killed. Zechariah was stoned, and Uriah, a prophet during Jeremiah's time, he was put to death by the sword. We have later writings, they're called apocryphal writings, they came basically as history books, that claim that almost all of the apostles were martyred, or apostles, prophets were martyred. So we do have that, but it's not substantiated in Scripture, so we can't really know. But when Jesus is saying, hey, time after time, God tried to get your attention, he tried to warn you, and you just wouldn't listen, you treated them horribly, some of them you beat, some of them you killed, you have made mistakes in the past. Religious leaders, learn from your mistakes. Heed it as a warning. You need to pay attention here. Now, the parable continues. And what Jesus is going to say is that God would not relent. He would not stop trying to regain the hearts of his creation. And so he went to his final play his last-ditched effort, and he sent his son. The owner of the vineyard sent his only son, Jesus, who is the final hope. Luke, Luke chapter 20, verses 13 through 15. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What am I going to do? They won't listen to these people. What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. That phrase, whom I love, is well translated, but it also has an undercurrent. Okay, it also means only son. So my only son, whom I love. I, I want to make sure that we understand there is no other, there's no other options. There's no other offspring to send. And the religious leaders would have heard that and known that Jesus has been claiming to be the, the only son of God, the one and only son of God, which he is. And so they would have heard this. I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. 
This is premeditated. It's not accidental. They talk the matter over. This is his heir. This is his heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So what did they do? They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do with them? What will they do? Now, it's hard for us to believe that even though this is a parable, anyone would treat the only son of the landowner in this way, thinking that they would get to keep everything for themselves if they just killed the son. We'll get the inheritance then. But remember, this is a parable. And what Jesus is desperately, desperately trying to get his listeners to understand is that, hey, Pharisees, religious leaders, you think if you get rid of me, if you kill me, that's your plan. You think what's going to happen is we're going to go back to business as usual, that you're going to restore your power and your prestige and the profit that you're receiving from how you've corrupted the worship here in Jerusalem. You think by getting rid of me, you will get to keep it all, all that you built, you'll get to have it. But I'm trying to warn you, that's not how it's going to go down. You kill me and you get nothing. You get absolutely nothing. And little did the religious leaders know. Little did they know this beautiful, beautiful truth. That after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, he would look back down upon creation. And he would say that all who put their faith in me, the Son of God, I'm going to make them co-heirs with me co-heirs of all of this. Because through their faith in me, the son of God, they will be adopted as son and daughters of the father, the most high God. And so what they thought was going to work to their advantage, if we kill him, if we reject him, then we get to keep it all. And when in reality, the exact opposite is true. If we accept him, if we trust in him, and believe in him, and put our faith in him, then we get it all. We get to be part of the inheritance because we get adopted as sons and daughters. They thought they could have it all. And if they just listened to the warning, it would have been possible. It would have been possible for them to have just that. Jesus is not completely done yet. Final warning. The parable is concluding, and here's exactly what's going to happen to you if you don't listen. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. Luke chapter 20, verses 16 through 19. Here's what the landowner, God the Father, here's what he will do. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. He'll crush and reject and remove those tenants who rejected his son. And he'll give the vineyards to others, those who didn't. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. He'd never do that because they knew what Jesus was talking about. No, God would never remove people from the vineyard. We're this chosen people. He wouldn't do that. No, that's a non-starter. God forbid. That wouldn't happen. Verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them. I directly at them. And he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written, 
the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The parable is over, and now it's one-on-one, Jesus with the religious leaders. You know the Bible better than anyone else. What does it mean in Psalms 118, verse 22, when it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? What does that mean? And he tells them, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests, did they heed the warning? Did they listen? No. What they did is they looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. They were afraid the people might understand what he's saying and accept him, and they had to reject him. Through Jesus' rejection by the religious leaders, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of Psalm 118. He becomes the cornerstone upon which everything else is built. If we read the rest of Psalm 118, verses 22, 23, and 24, we get a little bit more. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Okay, The capstone is the final stone that you lay. That's the final stone you lay after you build the walls. The cornerstone is the first stone that you lay. And you're like, wait, is this a misquote? No, the word used in Psalms 118 can mean many different types of stones, but all crucial to the building of, a, of any structure. So Jesus is the first stone laid, because if you lay that one true, then the rest of the building will be true. Jesus is the capstone, the last stone laid, that holds the structure all together. The walls cannot stand up without the capstone. Jesus is the capstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Verse 23, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. The cornerstone, the capstone, we should rejoice and be glad in him. Jesus' rejection is actually cause for celebration because his glory comes through the suffering and his victory comes from a cross. The religious leaders, they had a choice to make, but because of the glory, okay, not because, they had a choice to make to either be a part of the glory or to be crushed by their own selfishness, pride, and arrogance. They could rejoice and be glad in this day that the cornerstone was here, or they could reject it and be crushed by it. And actually, church, as heavy as this message has been, it's a very simple warning to all of us. You can be like the tenants who rejected the stone, Or you can be part of the group, the new group that partakes in the glory. You you get to decide. You get to decide by choosing whether or not you're going to believe in the cornerstone, by whether or not you're going to believe in Jesus. You get to make that decision. This entire story is one that regards salvation. Everyone there would have seen this. And I hope that you will see it today. And I hope just like Jesus wanted them to respond positively, that you today would choose to respond positively to him. Because it's by the grace of God and for his glory that every person has a choice. You've got a choice you can make. You can choose to accept or reject the grace that he's given you through his son, Jesus Christ. You get to make that choice. Will you accept or reject? To accept means you'll be with God. To reject means you'll be cast out. It can't get any more clear than that. 
That is a fair warning. And Jesus wants you to hear today that you have now been fairly warned what rejection means and what acceptance means. Being cast out or being brought in. But I don't think that's the only thing we learn from this. I think we can learn for those of us who have made that decision, who have accepted Jesus, who are going to be with him in eternity, that his glory actually starts today. God created this world for a purpose. He created it to receive glory through our lives. But he created this in a very good way so that we might live good, fulfilling lives, purposeful lives. He did that so that by doing so, we might give him glory. So I ask you, how are you doing at enjoying the garden? Okay, I know the garden's gone, but this is his creation still. How are you doing at enjoying his creation? How are you doing at communing with the Father? Because he's with us through his Holy Spirit right here, right now. How are you doing in that, walking with him, talking with him? Are you being a good tenant Are you doing your fair share of the labor? Are you making sure that the community is taken care of? Not the community you live in, the community of God. Are you doing that? Are you giving back a portion of the fruit? Are you loving him and others as you bask in his glory? How are you doing at living in the garden? How are you doing in that? Your life was bought, purchased, at the price of his one and only son, whom he loved. He paid an ultimate price so that you might be with him. And all you have to do today is accept him. And after accepting him, he calls you to live with him, to bask in his glory. And I pray, church, that you will make that decision and you will bask in that glory today. Father, help us to see the truth of this parable, the truth of your word, the truth of your love and your grace, The truth that by accepting you, we get to be co-heirs of all, all that you are and all that you have. We desire you, Jesus. Help those of us who are calloused, hurt, who are distant and wandering. God, help us be called by your name into relationship with you, to walk with you, to serve you, to obey you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need you to do that, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've already done. And we ask you to come and move today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.